welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? Happy Thanksgiving. David, happy Thanksgiving to you too. So yes, listeners, we're recording this on, on Thanksgiving. It's just another Thursday for us, so here we are toiling away, pushing forward the boundaries of knowledge. British people have not embraced <laughs> Thanksgiving. They have embraced Black, Black Friday. I know you have thoughts about that, Frank, but... Uh, We'll save that rant maybe for for, for later. Yeah, all right, we can just add that along with, with my rant about the Fourth of July. Sorry, anyway. right? <laughs> so, Annual rant about Black Friday. But happy Thanksgiving. Uh, this week we're going to look at vigilantism, and, and this is in response to two court decisions which came down this week, uh, that which gripped the nation and much of the rest of the world. That is to say, the decision early in the week uh, where Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty. Of, of shooting three men in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where he claimed his self-defense, uh, and a decision last night in which three men were found guilty of murdering Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, uh, where they also claimed uh, self-defense as their justification for, for shooting uh, Mr. Arbery. Uh, and so these, I think, cases are, are extraordinarily interesting in terms of making sense of, of vigilante violence, making sense of of self-defense, of the place of, of guns in American society today, and uh, yeah, see if we can unpack these a little bit. Yeah, as usual, we want to provide a little bit of historic context to the uh, events, uh, the events of the week, and so we want to we want to look at the history of vigilantism now. Do you want to say a bit about the cases yeah, themselves? We should, yeah, because yeah, I'm, I'm imagining most listeners are familiar with these cases, but just so we're all on the same page in terms of the sort of backgrounds to these. Uh, the case that is decided first, all the events actually happened later um, in terms of the uh, instigating events. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, who was found not guilty uh, earlier this week, uh, the origin of that case is in, with protests in August of 2020 in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, these are protests that emerged uh, after the police shooting of a man named Jacob Blake, who was an African-American man who was shot in Kenosha, and this was, of course, a summer with large numbers of, of protests about police violence against African Americans um, across the country. Uh, and in these protests, uh, a city councilor who was worried about property damage encouraged people to come to defend uh, Kenosha from what he saw as uh, instigators and, and rioters, what other people might characterize as protesters. One of the people who arrived in Kenosha was Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old from Illinois, um, who traveled there uh, ostensibly to protect, I believe, a used car uh, dealership. Uh, and uh, after a series of, of altercations with uh, protesters, ended up shooting three of them, two of whom uh, died from their uh, injuries. Uh, and he was found not guilty earlier this week on the grounds of uh, self-defense. Yeah, that's right, David. And a, a couple of um, things to add to that, I suppose. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the the protection of private property that the city councilor invoked uh, during those uh, during those protests, because uh, if you remember back to the summer of 2020 in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in, in, in May of 2020, um, there were widespread protests across the country, and one thing that the uh, that became a hot button issue during that summer was looting and the sanctity of private property. And certainly, critics from the right made much of the breakdown of law and order and the threat to private property that seemed to manifest itself during those uh, that summer of protests. And that was one of the animating things um, in Kenosha. It should be said, particularly when we get to Kyle Rittenhouse's defense, uh, that, that he was acting in self-defense, mm -hmm. that he did cross state lines, as you indicated. He, he came from a suburb of Chicago in northern Illinois. Uh, his mother drove him to Kenosha, uh, and he wasn't just there to protect property. He also was a self-styled sort of medic and had declared himself that he'd had a little bit of uh, first aid training and he was going to act as a, as a medic during these during these protests, and he brought an AR-15 rifle with him. 
Uh, he saw himself as a good guy with a gun. He saw him, yes, and, and that's, that's very, and the good guy with a gun is a trope that's really, really important, particularly to the NRA, but to the mm-hmm. gun rights movement in the United States more generally, that in these times of danger, a good guy with a gun can, can be a help. And so mm-hmm. um, let, let's assume, for the sake of argument, that he was acting in good faith, act, you know, that he believed himself to be a good guy with a gun going to this area of, of disorder and intended to help. Whether that was, he exercised good judgment or not, I think mm. is definitely debatable. Um, so, so that's the background. I, I don't think we necessarily have to give him the benefit of the doubt as the discussion yeah. uh, goes on, but that, that's how he saw himself. But, and he's been heralded as a, as a hero by at least a segment of the American uh, population at both uh, in 2020 when this event happened and uh, this week. There have been several Republican congressmen who have uh, encouraged Rittenhouse to uh, to become uh, interns or something. I think the two of them said they were going to arm wrestle for who's going to get to have him as an intern. I think he met with President Trump or former President Trump earlier this week who said very nice things about him. Uh, Fox News is doing a documentary about him which I think is going to position him as a as a heroic figure, so I think there, there are very divided interpretations about how we should make sense of of Kyle Rittenhouse. At least. Yeah, with respect to the, the the congresspersons who are offering him an internship, um, it's not exactly the best and the brightest. So it's Lauren Boebert and Madison Cawthorn. I think he might have met Matt Gates. Uh, these, <laughs> yes, um, but but interestingly. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse did do an interesting flex over mm-hmm. the past few days because he was interviewed by Tucker Carlson, I think, and indicated some sympathy for the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which has upset some of his admirers on the right, although others have said, no, no, he's doing this to protect himself in the event of a, uh, a civil suit uh, in the future because uh, the, the families of those he killed might be, or at mm-hmm. the time he's arrived, might sue him in a civil case. Uh, so, so, yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse is in a weird place in the culture at the moment where he's been embraced by certain segments of the American population while condemned by others. And a lot of people are mystified uh, that he got off, although legal experts, and again, I, and you and I are not legal experts as we demonstrate almost weekly on this podcast, um, <laughs> but, but legal experts say, well, actually, Wisconsin's self-defense law is, is broad enough that they weren't that surprised by this outcome. So that Maybe something yeah. we want to discuss. What about the other? Okay, or is there anything else to say about? Oh, well, well, I, we'll come back to. Let's let's see if we can do the the, the the encapsulated version of the other situation. Um, so this is a decision that just came down uh, yesterday, uh, and it involves a, a man by the name of Ahmed, uh, Ahmed Arbery, who was an African American man. He was twenty five years old. He was jogging in a predominantly white neighborhood near Brunswick, Georgia, in February of twenty twenty. He was, uh, uh, while jogging, uh, uh, approached by, by three men in two trucks, uh, Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Roddy Bryant. Uh, Bryant uh, videotaped this, and that's actually how we have most of the details of it. Um, they claimed that, uh, that they thought he was uh, engaging in some kind of theft. There was a building house under construction that supposedly he had been um, seen um, trespassing on, and uh, they approached him, wanted to conduct in what they claimed to be a citizen's arrest, and uh, ended up shooting him in the process. Uh, the interesting thing about one of the interesting, many of the interesting things about this case is that local authorities initially declined uh, to prosecute these three men. They said, look, they, they were acting, they said, in self-defense and were justified. It was not actually until the video uh, became public in May 5th, and there was a public outcry that state authorities uh, decided to, to prosecute in this case. Um, and uh, the three men claimed uh, much in the defenses in the two cases is remarkably similar. They're both claiming self-defense as a legal justification for their actions. Um, but in this case, they were found... Uh, guilty. Uh, all three men were found guilty. Uh, not all of them of all the charges, but but they were found guilty of, of his murder. Uh, and in the aftermath, Governor Kemp uh, said, "There's no place for vigilante justice in Georgia," which, given the history of Georgia, is a very interesting thing to say. But uh, 
they were found guilty. And so the juxtaposition of these two cases, I think, is fascinating about what it says about the American legal system and the place of self-defense, vigilante justice, uh, and what have you. Yeah, I would say two things in, in, in response to that, David. Mm-hmm. One is, or I guess there are two commonalities I, I would observe. The use of self-defense as a defense mm. uh, in both cases, but also that the uh, men who did the killing killings in both cases in disparate locations claimed at least that they were justified in doing so because they were defending private property. Yes. Um, so, so their defenses were similar, although the outcomes were different. Uh, and and the, the, the incidents began at least the justification began uh, for them over a, a, a defense of private property, but not necessarily um, property owned by the individuals who did the killing. Right. You know, so, so Kyle Rittenhouse is there to protect a used car dealership. The McMichaels, uh, you know, were acting to protect building supplies at a, at a house that was under construction. So, so people were taking upon themselves, mm. the, the people who were actually using deadly force, um, they were taking on that responsibility in defense of private property. And maybe that actually goes to the vigilante aspects of this, which we should get to, I guess. So, mm. so that's just an observation. The other thing I would make, and I, again, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, and I, I'm not an expert mm. in criminal law in any way. Um, I was surprised at the number of charges in the Georgia case. So when they read the verdict, I watched the I'm reading sure. of the verdict, and, and it wasn't just murder in the first degree. There, was, there were multiple murder charges. And, I, and I, frankly, I didn't understand it, but I didn't follow the case that closely. Uh, I don't know whether you... I did, yeah. You, so, so what was the... And again, you're not a lawyer. I understand no, I mean, yes. that, but, but you, you might... Can you explain Well, so I, mean, I think there, there was a... There was a detention claim, so basically kidnapping. Are you holding somebody against their will? There were there were different sort of degrees of murder that they were charged with, depending on you know. So the jury could have said, "Look, this is not first degree murder. This is manslaughter. This is some other kind of lesser charge." Um, that's my understanding. There. Sure, but once you're guilty of the worst one, wouldn't it negate all the other charges? Yes, I, mean, but I, I don't. Know. I just it, we don't okay, need to detain don't. ourselves with this. It just was something that struck me, and I didn't. I did. But I think we, we do need to sort of unpack self. The self-defense um, defense, because I think it's it's intriguing uh, as because I think it's really at the heart of both of these cases, and I think it sort of speaks to a particular um, moment we're in right now in the United States in terms of our our our, our legal system, because the self-defense defense. Uh, plea has become more and more prevalent in the past two decades than it has been in the two centuries before that. Uh, and so I think making sense of what that is and why it's become so much more prevalent, uh, I think is something we need to sort of deal with. Do we want to, do we try to do that? Yeah, you try. Okay, okay. So, okay. Right, explain the I'm history. Not, so I'm not that. a lawyer, but Then I'm we need to switch to vigilantism. Right. So the basic premise of, of the self-defense plea uh, is rooted in English common law. So it's old. It goes back sort of Middle Ages kind of stuff. And the premise is that the state has a monopoly on legal violence and le- lethal violence. Um, so this is an exception to that. And the exception is you are allowed to use lethal violence if you uh, believe that your life is in jeopardy or you believe somebody else's life is in jeopardy and you're acting to prevent that loss of life. But I mean, the, the way that, that common law tradition tends to work is that for every, you know, so you have everything, every claim that's made, there's usually sort of exceptions. And the exception in common law to self-defense is that embedded within it is this notion that there's an, a duty to retreat. So if you look, if you read sort of legal text, Blackstone, what have you, and they talk about what self-defense is, you say, look, you have a right to self-defense, but your first duty, though, is a duty to retreat. Uh, so if, if somebody's... Not threat- have your mother drive you to not, another state. <laughs> or, or, or more morally, if you have a chance to run away, you should run away. Right. Like if this is something that you can use if you are backed into a corner and you have no other option. Otherwise, you have a duty to retreat. And that has an exception. 
And the exception, uh, at least in the United States, is called the Castle Doctrine, which implies that the one place you don't have a duty to retreat is in your own home on the supposition that, that your home is, is your retreat, and so you know that, that's not a place where you have to run away. You don't have to run away from your own home if someone's breaking into your home. You can defend your home uh, within it. Those are principles that are sort of broadly applicable in places that have common law traditions. So that's England, that's the United States, it's Canada, former British um, colonies and what have you. The intriguing thing that's happened with those principles as they've been applied in the United States and as American law has, has sort of tweaked them, especially in recent years, is a couple things have happened. One is that this duty to retreat has basically evaporated in the United States. And this starts to evaporate in uh, the 19th century. There's a series of, of court decisions that have basically said that, that Americans aren't bound by the same kind of duty to retreat the common law tradition suggests. Um, and for instance, there's an Ohio Supreme Court decision in 1876 that says a true man, it's a very 19th century language, a true man, one without fault, would not retreat. And so the, you know, a real American, a real man, doesn't retreat from the face of danger so running away is, is unmanly and therefore not an obligation. There's a decision in uh, Indiana the following year and says the tendency of the American mind seems to be very strongly against the enforcement of any rule which requires a person to flee when assailed. And so in practice, the sort of duty to retreat that's sort of part, part and parcel of what self-defense should or had been in common law countries starts to disappear you know, in the mid-19th century. And there's some famous cases where people don't retreat uh, and are found, are, are found not guilty by reason of self-defense. Uh, one of the, probably the Doc Holliday, the famous sort of gambler, uh, is one of those examples. Uh, he shot a man named Billy Allen in Leadville, Colorado. Holliday owed him some money. He knew that Allen was armed and uh, wanted his money back. I think it was like $5. It wasn't a lot of money. And Holiday shot and killed him, believing that Allen was a threat to him without retreating. And, he, and his defense was basically a real man doesn't retreat in the face of danger. And the jury let him off on those grounds. That kind of... of, of the all-male jury. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, that kind of... of legal, uh, that the, 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 uh, obfuscation of the duty retreat has become the more formalized in recent years with stand-your-ground laws. Yeah, so explain to our listeners, particularly those who are non-Americans, what a stand-your-ground law is, David. Oh, well, so a stand-your-law-ground, the first of these is passed in Florida in 2005, but of then... Of course it's Florida. Of course it's Florida. <laughs> when in doubt, Florida. Um, basically formalizes this idea that you do not have a duty to retreat uh, when you feel threatened, that you in fact have a, 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 a maybe not quite a right, but a, 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 you can use that sort of fear of violence against you as a, as a grounds for using lethal violence against somebody else. Um, and a key dimension of this is with widespread gun ownership mm -hmm. and particularly more liberal laws about when you can carry a gun, people can say that they feel threatened because they do feel threatened when you're in an environment where people are, are armed. Yeah, this is exactly right. And those two things are, are going together, uh, you know, hand in glove. Right? So the, the Florida law said, and other laws in other states are uh, sort of copy this, he says, it says a person is justified in the use of deadly force and does not have a duty to retreat if he or she reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to him or herself. And if you look at the states that adopt stand-your-ground laws and the states that have open carry laws, they're basically all the same states. And the states that don't haven't embraced it, you know, they, they, those things have gone hand together. So open carry laws are laws that allow you to carry a gun openly. Right, just like Kyle Rittenhouse did in Wisconsin. And right. most states now have 
both open carry and stand your ground laws. I think there's 38 states have some version of stand your ground laws, and some of these are a product of legislation, some of them are products of court decisions. Um, but the NRA has pushed very heavily for stand your ground laws, uh, precisely on this idea that a person has a right to defend themselves anywhere. That the castle doctrine basically applies everywhere. And uh, you know, the American readings of the castle doctrine are also more expansive. States have expanded the castle doctrine to include not only your home, but your place of work, your car, your yard, the sidewalk outside your house. And you know, what we've seen, especially in the past 20 years, is a sort of dramatic expansion legally in the ability of someone to say, look, I thought I was threatened and therefore I had a right to use lethal force. And what matters in the legal in the framing of the laws is not whether the person is actually threatened, but matters whether they think they are threatened, whether they perceive a threat. And so what matters is, you know, so if you said, so, I felt threatened, then you are all, have a right to, or can claim self-defense. And so Rittenhouse claimed, I felt threatened, and therefore I used legal force. And, and the same claim was made in, in the Georgia case. Oh, um, the Georgia case is even more absurd than the Rittenhouse case because they chased him down yeah. and shot him. Well, one of the claims made in both cases, and this is just fascinating, horrifying, is that in both cases, they claim that one of the reasons they felt threatened was they feared that the person shot would take their weapon away from them. So, so Rittenhouse claimed, I had an AR-15, I thought somebody else was going to take it and use it against me, and therefore I need to shoot someone to prevent them from taking my gun to shoot me with my own gun. Which means you don't even have to be feel threatened because somebody it else has a gun. gun. Your own gun... Yeah, so, so that, 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 was, that played very heavily in the Georgia case. They, they said the moment they shot him was when they said he reached for the gun. Because poor Ahmad Aubrey was out jogging. Jogging, exactly. He wasn't threatening anyone. Exactly. Okay. Um, We're both horrified by this and trying to cope with the sort of rationality. Yeah, so, 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 so hang framework. on, David, hang on. So what happened, because in both of these cases, the premise was the defense of private property, not the threat to life. So does it matter how you got there? No, I think all that matters, at least my understanding of the legal framing, is, is what you see at the moment you fire the gun. So if at the moment you fire the gun, you feel that you are threatened, that your life is jeopardized, then you are can use this framework. And what's happened since then has been a dramatic, you know, since the standard ground laws passed in Florida, a dramatic expansion in the number of people who have pled not guilty by grounds of self-defense. Um, so, David, to, just to analogize, and I want to make it clear to listeners that I do not have a gun in this room at this time. I've never owned a gun in my life. But it would be as if you and I had an argument. I was armed with a gun and you were not. But because I felt that you might take my gun away from me, I would be justified in shooting you. Is that... Yeah, pretty much. That, that because I would feel threatened by you. I feel threatened by you. I'm not a very threatening guy, but yes, that's I the mean, premise. Well, right? long-time listeners of this podcast would disagree with this. <laughs> they would say that you should feel threatened by me. Oh. <laughs> but, but okay, all right. So, so uh, that, that's a really interesting and, and excellent summary. So thank you for doing that. But it's all about individual violence. But vigilantism yes. has historically been about collective violence or group violence. So, so well, what, it can be both. There's a bit of a disconnect here, I think. Because well, so I mean, you know, how are we defining vigilantism? That's a tricky thing. Cause, I mean, in both both cases, they this has been described as vigilante violence, and the term has been used in both cases, both as a negative and as a positive valence attached to it. You know, so when, when Governor Kemp said we don't have vigilante you know, violence, uh, we don't allow vigilantes in Georgia, that was seen vigilantes as bad but like there's there were people who who have called Rittenhouse a vigilante but said that in a positive sense so what what definition Frank are we going to use here for what a vigilante is? well I've got a simple one which you may or may not accept but it's from a man named Jonathan Obert or Ober, uh, who is a political scientist at Amherst College mm. who's written extensively on vigilantism 
And he, this is very short, but I think it might work for us, says, vigilantism, the private violent enforcement of public moral or legal standards. And then he goes on to say, it tends to rise in two types of situations. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But that's a, sim- that's a very simple um, definition. The private violent enforcement of public moral or legal standards. Are you, you happy with that? I'll go with that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we could argue, for, nobody would want to hear it, we could argue about whether, what constitutes vigilantism, but mm. I think as a working definition, that might work for us. Yes. I think that's a good definition. That's a terrible yes. sentence. To... No, I, I think that that's a good definition. Okay, all right. So if we historicize this, mm. and uh, you know, one of the people who's written the most about this is a historian you'll be familiar with named mm. Richard Maxwell Brown, who's sure. written a lot about the history of violence in the United States. And Brown... Uh, in, a, in an overview of the history of vigilantism in the, in the United States. I, th- I think he would more or less accept that, mm. that, that definition. He argues that, you know, goes back to the colonial period, the first real outbreak of vigilantism is in the South Carolina Regulation of the late 1760s, when uh, settlers in the back country of South Carolina... And North Carolina. And North Carolina, and actually other colonies as well. Right. Speaking up for North Carolina, David, that's it. You're repping your My wife is descended from North Carolina regulators, so... Okay, uh, all right. So, so, um, you know, took the law into their own hands largely because they felt that uh, the colonial governments, uh, you know, along the Tidewater were not Mm. representing and uh, were were not uh, taking care of their interests and and protecting them. Mm. And and that there was a degree of lawlessness in the back country and that it was necessary for them to take the law into their own hands. Brown argues in his overview of all this, and, and he's kind of that between roughly the North Carolina, oh, sorry, the Carolina regulation of the late 1760s and 1910, mm. <laughs> rather abrupt end date, that at least 6,000 people were killed in extra legal violence in the United States by vigilantes. And again, if we're going to use this simple definition, the, the private violent enforcement of public and moral legal standards. Now, Brown closely ties this to frontier settlement. And on one hand, this goes to um, uh, historic explanations of violence in America, particularly gun violence. But he also acknowledges that there's a huge racial dimension to this, especially in the South. And I, um, I, I, can, I can see you, the words are about to come out of your mouth. Uh, you know, slave patrols, for example, mm. are a form of vigilantism uh, or could be. Or, yeah. you know, so, so but before we went on the air, I, I, I made a provocative suggestion to you. And I put a question to you, which you did not answer then, but I'm going to do it on the air now, David. Okay. So you're, you're under oath now. Sure. Um, okay. <laughs> are the Sons of Liberty vigilantes in the run-up to the American Revolution, if we're saying the private violent enforcement of public, moral, or legal standards? I'm going to say no, they're not. And my rationale for that is... that the private and violent enforcement of public moral and legal standards implies that there is a public violent enforcement of moral and legal standards, that there is some state apparatus that is in charge of doing this, and vigilante violence is some other level on top of, of that. Um, and so I think you know when we talk about vigilante violence in the colonial period, it's of a different kind than what you're going to end up with later when you have things like the police and you have other kinds of public violent enforcement of of moral and legal standards. Yeah, I mean, Richard Brown argues that you actually get vigilantism prior to the police because Mm. it's a necessity to enforce some sort of community standards uh, in the absence of law and order. So I think things are, you're suggesting kind of what happens in a later period, Mm. but um, again, we don't have to belabor this too much because I think there are better contemporary examples we want to get to, but again, with the Sons of Liberty, okay, but but, you know, after 1768, there are British troops in Boston that are there to enforce the law and guarantee the peace, and the Sons of Liberty are acting in contravention of that, they're tarring and feathering people. Okay. Okay. I mean, they're, they're, okay. they're using violence. All right. Well, then. Or are they terrorists? Because they're they're using violence to achieve political ends. I take your pick, patriot. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think these are very. 
obviously these are very loaded terms, right? And so I think we can both, you know, the utility of them um, can be the, um, they, 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 can, they, can, they can cloud as much as they illuminate, you know, in as much as, you know, if we call somebody a vigilante, uh, does that then legitimate or illegitimate their, their actions? Um, does it make them into heroes or does it make them into monsters? And, um, you know, the terrorist, I think, inherently makes them into monsters because of, of the ways in which that term has come to be used in the, the 20th and 21st centuries. You know, vigilante is a, is a bit more fuzzy in as much as, as Americans both love and hate vigilantes. And I think there's a, a particular place for the vigilante in American uh, culture and popular culture that's sort of hard to figure out what we think about vigilantes and what we uh, Americans think about people who take the law into their own hand and, and whether that's uh, something that should be praised or, or damned. What do you think about the Sons of Liberty? You're, you, you've thought about this far more than I have. I think, th I think they're more likely to be, I, I think they're possibly better described as vigilantes than as, as um, terrorists. I think terrorists uh, is more problematic mm. to describe them. But I think they're enforcing a certain community standard. Uh, one of the things that's at odds with this, mm. and Obert makes this point mm. in some of his writings about vigilantism, it's uh, often these standards are contested, which mm. is why you get violence. Um, and and so when we talk about community standards, not necessarily standards everyone in the community that everyone in the community, community agrees with uh, adheres to. Um, so, so I, in in thinking about this episode and doing some reading about this, I actually think they might be vigilantes. I think that mm. that's a better better description. What's interesting, and again, we don't want to stay in the 18th century too long. Even I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do we do with? the Shaysites and the Whiskey Rebels, and once you, once you have a new political order mm. in place, do people using these tactics, are, are they still vigilantes or are they just outlaws? Are they, and we don't need to, again, yeah. I, 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 think, I think you put your finger on something really important, which is there's, there, there's the question of community standards. There's also the relationship between the law and legal authority or governmental mm. authority and law enforcement and activity that if it's not illegal, it's certainly extra legal. So Kyle Rittenhouse claimed that he was there to support the police. Right. And we have the police giving him bottled water and you know, act you know, yeah. high fiving him and things like this. And so, so one of the police said of the sort of militia people like Kyle Rittenhouse who showed up in they said in the trial, we really appreciate you guys, we really do. Right. And yeah. so I think you have cases where the relationship between vigilantes mm. and now I'm thinking across American history and the authorities and organs of, of, of law and order and state violence is a very interesting one. Yeah. And sometimes they're actually, I mean, you know, probably um, the most famous uh, culture, vigilante in American culture is Dirty Harry, right? Yeah. Or, or Death, Charles Bronson in Death Wish. Or Batman. Or, uh, yes, actually, you're right. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but, Let's go with Dirty Harry for, for the sake of argument here because I'm trying to make a point. <laughs> Which is, but Dirty Harry is actually a cop. Yes. So, so, but, but he's, you know, he's bound by the liberals in, in San Francisco. and, and, and Well, and, and one of the things that, that, that I think is intriguing well, about... Constrained, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. One, one of the interesting things about this idea of, of the relationship between the sort of formal ways of regulating society through things like the police and, and vigilantes... Is there's one explanation for vigilantes is vigilantes arise when there isn't police. And we can think about That's the Richard Brown about, argument. So we can think about sort of the things that emerge in the gold rush. Right. Uh, where there isn't or the Wild West, where there isn't enough law enforcement to regulate the kinds of laws. There's actually a vigilance committee in San Francisco. Francisco. Do you want to talk about that? No, no, no. Oh, I mean, just know kind of, you know, after the gold rush because so, of the disorder in San Francisco, this vigilance committee takes the law into its own hands and, and they execute a few people, right. and, and so, so there's that model of what vigilance, uh, uh, vigilantes are. The other one, though, and I think this is more common, uh, and I think it sort of speaks to this particular moment, is that vigilantes actually work in conjunction with police to enforce kind of the community standards the police can't enforce. And I think D Dirty Harry is a good example of that, where he's sort of doing both simultaneously. He's, about the, he's the cop, but he's also the 
cop that goes beyond. Or Batman or working Batman. with the commissioner. Yeah, so Batman's in, you know, depends, is Batman a vigilante? And it depends on which version of Batman you want to look at. Because the cops, I mean, if you're doing the 1960s Adam West Batman, that's one relationship with the cops if you're looking at different versions of Batman. Like, here's a guy who's going out and beating up criminals. Depending on which version of the comic you're reading. Uh, you know, what's his legal right to do that? None, other than the fact that he's rich. Um, you know, and he's working with the cops, but also not working with the cops. And his, he, the relationship there, I think, is actually, which is, you know, he's the hero of the movie. But when you sort of think about it, it's actually deeply problematic about a guy choosing to beat up people he thinks are criminals because he can. You know, in other examples of vigilante violence, including both of the ones, the, the trials this week, the police supported the vigilante violence in various ways. You mentioned, you know, Rittenhouse being given water by the cops. The two of the, at least two of the three men in Georgia had previously worked alongside police as investigators or some other capacity. And that's part of the reason why they were not originally charged by police is they had connections with the police uh, and the police thought that they were good guys with guns. Uh, so there's you know, this relationship between the sort of private violent enforcement of moral and legal standards and, and the, 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 the official version. We can think about uh, you know, the violence against thinking in the case of, of both lynchings and the predecessors to, to lynchings and things like the, the Klan during Reconstruction. You know, if I've been spending a lot of time recently reading uh, uh, congressional investigations into the Klan during Reconstruction. The number of times Klan's members are also sheriffs is, is, I mean, it's not surprising, but it is surprising, you know, and... You know, likewise, when we think about the kinds of lynchings that took place at the sort of apex of lynchings at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries, you know, those are extra-legal executions that are often done with a wink and a nod from the legal authorities that are supposed to prevent those things from happening, but are at the same time actively participating in these. So we can think about the, you know, we have thousands of lynchings that sort of Estimates are, are sort of all over the place, but, but at least 4,000 lynchings of African-Americans between 1880 and 1920, including some 450 in Georgia, which had one of the highest rates of lynching in the country. You know, and the police are, if not actively supporting many of those lynchings, they are sort of passively supporting those lynchings by, by not prosecuting the people involved. Well, and not infrequently, the victims in those lynchings were taken from police custody. Exactly. Um, yeah, because they've been arrested on some kind of charge. Charge, and, and, and the, the rationale is that the police don't act quick enough to provide the kind of justice the community wants, and so they break him out of jail, break him out of jail being, you know, allowed to do it with the consent and support of the police. Is it important to draw a distinction, though, between a crowd, a mob that's involved in a lynching, so somebody being murdered by a... By a crowd mm. and an organized group of vigilantes, a group that is somehow that, that, that has some kind of organization leadership and is acting does that distinction matter I mean it obviously doesn't matter yeah. to the victim I understand sure, I don't yeah. mean to be insensitive to the victims but I'm in, in, try, in trying to understand vigilantism as a force is there a distinction to be drawn between the mm. murderous rage of a crowd and the actions of individuals who've taken on this, again, if not illegal power or authority, at least mm. extra legal authority. Does that is that a helpful yeah, way? Yeah, that's a that's a, that a that's a good that's a good question. Um, I mean, lynchings. If you look at the, they come in a variety of different forms. You have you do have cases where you know a handful of people acting impulsively are murdering somebody. Uh, torturing somebody to, to death. And you have these sort of large spectacle lynchings. Um, but those are often more organized than, than you think they are. Sure. Like, I mean, we can think of the, the when Sam Hose was, was murdered, lynched in, in 1899. They ran special trains from Atlanta to, to go and participate in the lynching, which implies, you know, if they're, if they're getting the sense where they're, they're reorganizing public transportation, 
to, to facilitate the lynching that, that it's, it's more organized than, than people think. You know, and we had politicians in Georgia, Rebecca Lattimore Feldman and others, calling for more lynching um, to, to defend white womanhood and other kinds of things. I think, though, the idea of having... There's been a reinvention in the past, I think, 50 years uh, of a kind of civic um, vigilante groups uh, across the United States, groups like the Guardian Angels. I'm not sure. Do you have the Guardian Angels in Boston? I think they did briefly. Yeah, okay. But before we do that, actually, yeah. David, sorry, just to get to the antecedents of that, because the next thing mm. I want, uh, or an element of this I wanted to unpack, and mm. I think it leads to, to where you're going. Mm. So, if you, so if you'll indulge me okay, for yes. a second. What is the role of private organizations and police here? So I'm thinking about the Pinkertons in the 19th century. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking about organized strike breakers in the early 20th century. You know, the line that kept going through my mind here um, in, in thinking about this episode is the line from the Woody Guthrie song about Tom Joad. You know, a vigilante thug hit Casey with a club. So, so you know, um, so, so we have these as predecessors of, if you will, private, either private... Uh, paramilitary forces mm -hmm. or private police forces effectively as antecedents I think to what you see with the emergence of like the Guardian yeah. Angels in the 1970s so, so I just don't know whether how, how do they fit in this yeah, before you get no, to it's, the it's, it's, contemporary it's, stuff. it's tricky to think about sort of you know if what happens with, with you know if the state has a, a, a monopoly on, on, on violence or claims monopoly on violence what happens when you do create private institutions that, that claim to have some kind of police power but are also not responsible to the people that they are policing, right? So the, you know, the justification that we provide socially for having police and the police are a problematic institution is, is, is they protect us as citizens and that, that therefore we give them certain power and certain rights to, to, to be able to do that. Um, you know, there is this very long tradition in the United States of having people that, that are quasi-police, and the Pinkertons are a great example of this, but there's other examples of sort of private armies, essentially, that, that, that cloud themselves with the kind of um, police power. Um, and sometimes, by law, have kind of quasi-police functions including the use of violence, but, but are not responsible to the people. Um, you know, and whether that's Pinkertons in the, the 19th, early part of the 20th century, or you know, sort of more private policing and security today. Um, Especially in gated communities. To be sure, right? Like, what, you know, or mall cops. Like, where, where did those people fit into our conception of, of how, you know, violence gets used? So wait, David. Yes. So in thinking about cultural representations of vigilanteism, we have Dirty Harry, we have Batman, but now you're saying that Paul Blart, Mall Cop, belongs in that spectrum, in that category of rogue to... Well, I have not seen that particular <laughs> film. I have heard, heard tell of it. It didn't look good in the, in the, in the trailer, so I didn't see it. Um, you don't have to answer, answer that. Okay. <laughs> but, 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 but we... <coughs> you know, part of the... the vig the, the ethos behind the vigilanteism, I think, is, is the idea that, that communities should be policing themselves. And, you know, one of the, the examples that, that comes to mind, uh, there's two examples that come to mind in the sort of uh, 60s and 70s. You know, one are groups like the Black Panthers who see themselves as alternatives to police who are in charge of protecting the community from the police sometimes. And the other example that comes to mind are the Guardian Angels, which yeah, is a group sorry, that I, emerges. I, I, I um, you from that. That's all right. It's a group that emerges in New York City in 1979, uh, founded by a guy named Curtis uh, Sliwa, who actually ran for mayor of New York this year, didn't win. And wore his Guardian Angels beret. Yeah, yeah. So, so they are young men, mostly, uh, who wear a particular uniform it's it's they're not police uniforms they're wearing red berets and like white t-shirts with a uh, guardian angel logo on them and they were originally intended to police quote unquote the new york city subways 
Times, which, you know, in the 70s, New York City was a, had a very high crime rate. There was violence. There was graffiti. It was you know, not, not, not the prettiest place in the world. And, and the premise behind the Guardian Angels was if the police aren't able to make the subway safe, we will. And so they are a sort of civilian alternative to police. They weren't armed, though, right? They were not armed. They were trained in karate. Right. Um, and in fact, they were one of the things they're supposed to do is when they start patrol, they're supposed to like pat each other down to make sure that no one, none of them are carrying weapons. Um, you know, and when we think about you know how the real police responded to the guardian angels. It's really fascinating because some communities said, yes, we want the help and support, you know, anybody who wants to, um, you know, keep people safe is great. But other police were like, no, this is, this is our job. We don't want people making law enforcement decisions without training and supervision and, and accountability. Um, and so, so different communities you know, either welcomed or rejected you know, the, these kinds of, of vigilante groups. I mean, I think like Ed Koch, who was the mayor of New York, originally said, no, this is awful. And then eventually, I think, said it was okay, at least. How do, you, how, how do the Guardian Angels relate to neighborhood watch groups? Which, again, I think police are quite ambivalent about. Yeah. But, you know, it depends on the neighborhood, of course. Well, th those emerge... Um, at about the same time, and I think that's an intriguing... Well, the Neighborhood Watch emerges a little bit earlier, but the, it's both coming from New York City, actually. The, oh, is that right? the origin right. story for Community Watch starts um, after a murder of a woman named Kitty uh, Genovese in Queens in 1964. This is the moment where allegedly nobody called the police. Yes, right? exactly. So there was a New York Times story that said that this woman was uh, assaulted and killed, and that, according to the story... 38 people saw or heard the, the event and didn't act. Turns out that wasn't actually the case, but that was the story, the way it was spun uh, on the, at the time. And that led to the creation of, of two things. One, uh, the sort of 911 emergency numbers, which had actually begun slightly before that, but the sort of growth in them emerged after this, where people said, look, I would have called the police, but I don't know how to call the police. 911. But the other one is the creation of the, these idea of, of a neighborhood watch where the community is supposed to you know, actively patrol the community, look out their windows, they put up the signs about neighborhood watch. The idea is that the community is supposed to therefore work with the police to prevent violence and to act when they see violence. Um, and there's been a tremendous growth in that kind of vigilante activity over the you know past 40 years probably the most famous and horrific example is, is now almost 10 years old and, and that of course is um, the case of, of Trayvon Martin uh, who was killed in, in 2012 by George Zimmerman who was he said participating in a neighborhood watch patrol and sees a young African-American man in a predominantly white community um, stops him and again you know, the, the stories, the, the, the similarity between these stories is always very horrific. He, you know, he claims self-defense in uh, against uh, Trayvon Martin and, and therefore justified it in, in killing him. And then, you know, the similarities between the Trayvon Martin case and the Arbery case are, are horrifying. Um, but you do have a tremendous growth. And there obviously there are huge racial overtones in all of these things about, about who is getting policed and who is doing the policing. And I think that reflects you know, a problem that is in, endemic among policing more broadly. You know, If we think about uh, the situation in Ferguson with police violence, the, the, you know, that's now, what, 10 years old? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a situation where, where a predominantly black community is policed by an almost entirely white police force and the, that didn't live in the community. That didn't live in the community, you know, and, and that, that's all true in, in many communities where the, the, the police don't reflect the community they're policing. And, you know, and many times the, you know, these neighborhood watch groups are about whether they say this explicitly or not, and usually they don't, is, is that there's this about policing potential outsiders, people that they don't believe belong in the community. And I think, you know, the, the Trayvon Martin case is the, you know, sort of example 1A of that. 
The other sort of New York City example of the drawing, violence in New York City in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, that speaks to this moment of vigilante violence uh, is the Bernie Getz case. Do you remember the Bernie Getz? Yeah, the subway vigilante in 1984, right? Okay, so he gets called, he gets a nickname of vigilante, but that has a very positive, you know, at least for some people using it as a pejorative of of who he was. The story is uh, he was riding the subway, I think it was the downtown two train, um, and he, there's different versions of what actually happened, but he ends up shooting four uh, African-American men, young men, teenagers, who he, they're teenagers, who he claimed were trying to to rob him. Um, and he claimed, uh, again, self-defense uh, to prevent them from, from robbing him on, on the train. You know, and the intriguing thing about that case is, is, is how it sort of divided the city, in, in, at least in both my memory and going back and looking at it in retrospect. You know, there were some people who, who heralded him as a hero. Um, you know, somebody who, who stood up to violence and stood up to um, an attempted robbery. There are some people who said that he was a villain, somebody who was you know, taking the law into his own hands by, by shooting four unarmed men. You know, and then there, there's a bunch who of people... Were of a different race. Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah, the, the, the him being white, and then, you know, in in the sort of racial politics of, of New York City in the in the early eighties, I think that's you know very important. Um, what did Donald Trump say about it? I mean, he I looked, the, yeah, and uh, I couldn't find Donald Trump saying anything. I can't believe he didn't have an opinion. Oh, I'm I mean, sure he, he did. Love Bernie Getz, I'm guessing. Uh, oh, I think they would. Uh, yeah, I, that's a really. I I looked for that because I thought I thought that would be an interesting uh, connection there. Um, Rudy Giuliani, though, I think, did approve of him. Right. Okay. That's where we are with that. But, you know, that's an interesting moment about, you know, is he a... How should we think about people like Bernie Getz? Should should he be... Is that a justified use of violence or not? And there were whole debates about, you know, one of the guys ended up getting shot twice. Is that a legitimate use of violence? Bernie Getz's own sort of racial politics are, are, are part of it. He had previously said some some pretty inflammatory things that people brought up in his trial um, you know uh, but I think it's, he was convicted though of a it was a gun charge wasn't it, was it? it wasn't it was for shooting shooting yes but then he was later there was later a civil trial and he was found guilty of, 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 of violating the civil rights uh, of, of one of the men he shot and so he ended up getting um, sued for millions of dollars I think I mean, the interesting contrast between Bernie Getz and Kyle Rittenhouse, who are arguably are probably two of the most infamous vigilantes in American history. They, they may well come out. I mean, yes. Um, is the degree to which Kyle Rittenhouse went out uh, looking for trouble in the sense that he deliberately went to a, uh, went armed, mm. openly armed to an area where there was. There, there was conflict, yes. ongoing conflict, and had been for several days. Uh, Getz might have been looking for trouble, kind of Charles Bronson style from Death Wish, but mm. you know his encounter, you know, was an apparently random encounter on public transportation of the kind that many New Yorkers either experienced or feared what might happen to mm. them. So, so, so there was a randomness to that. The, 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 the immediate contexts are very different, even if the outcomes were, were similar. Um, there, there, there was a time in which there were a lot of muggings. In your sure, sure, sure. And, and the Getz case reflected all that anxiety about mm. violence in New York in the 70s and 80s, um, whereas Kyle Rittenhouse went to it. Kyle Rittenhouse was in no danger yes. prior, you know, when he woke up that morning in his house in Illinois. To be sure. <laughs> One would hope. You yes. Know, yes, well, his mother leaves something to be desired. <laughs> um, uh, but, 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 you know, he was in no immediate danger. Um, it, it's a really strange case. The facts of the Kyle Rittenhouse case are very, you know, there were a lot of decisions that were made by both him and people around him that, mm. that resulted in those deaths. Um, at any one of those points, why did the police just tell him to go home because he was 17 years old? 
Because he looks boyish. I mean, I know they didn't necessarily know exactly how old he was. Mm. Yeah, when you see him, when you see the images of him... He looks looks like a large child with a gun. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, he's particularly immature looking physically. Mm. Um, It's a a very strange case in so many ways. You know, but I think it's... I mean, what these cases speak to, I think, is that the you know there is some an aspect of American culture that that glamorizes people who take the law into their own hands, you know. And I think you know the the Dirty Harry examples of that that aspect of American culture of somebody or Batman or the A Team. I don't know whether you remember the, you know, like on the one hand, the A Team was good fun watching on TV with the you know, uh, machines and the explosions and everything else. On the other hand, they're a private vigilante group who, who are operating outside the law, but they're also heroes. Um, and I'm wondering if, if that is a, 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 maybe not particularly American, but, but seems to be more pronounced in American culture than it may be in other parts of the world. And I think it speaks to the fact that you know people like Kyle Rittenhouse can walk out of, of the not guilty verdict he receives with being seen by at least some people as, as, as a hero. What do you think about that? I don't know enough about the kind of transnational history of vigilanteism yeah. to be able to speak to that. And I do know that in certain parts of the world at certain times, Vigilanteism has been prominent, especially mm-hmm. the extra legal enforcement of laws or community standards. You think about a lot of this happened during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Oh, to be sure. So th- there are there are other examples, but I, frankly, I just don't know enough about it to be mm-hmm. able to, to comment um, intelligently. Um, I think, yeah, the lionization of Kyle Rittenhouse is not going to dissuade others from doing what he did. Yeah, and, and particularly, again, I'm not on the dark web, and I don't frequent um, the the parts of the light web what do we call the normal web <laughs> that you know where, where individuals of the, that, that those persuasions gather but from what I'm reading mm-hmm. in media reports and, and seeing occasionally you know he's being lionized and, and there will be people who may well be either energized or set in motion mm-hmm. by, by that verdict and, and that's got to be a worry the one thing I'll say mm-hmm. and the, the, this is not a solution uh, is I find it very hard to believe that things are going to end well for Kyle Rittenhouse. In other words, I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing Kyle Rittenhouse in the news in the coming years and decades, and it's not going to be a good story. In the same way that George Zimmerman, who Mm. killed Trayvon Martin, murdered Trayvon Martin, um, has not had a... You know, I think he should have been convicted. So Mm. I want to make that clear. I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think he's had his comeuppance, but George Zimmerman's life has not been great. And, and I, I don't think the future for, you know, if you're hanging out with Matt Gates, that's not necessarily where you want to be if you're 17 years old. <laughs> <All right. laughs> but, but, yeah, I, I, I'm not optimistic about Kyle Rittenhouse's mm. prospects at the moment. It's not quite the answer to your yes, question. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. But, I mean, I, th- I think you're right that there's a uh, direction of travel uh, with regards to this kind of, of vigilante violence is... Uh, Unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot more of it. And it makes me, you know, the de- well, it says something about the kind of faith people have or don't have in police forces that they, they you know, glamorize people who step outside the law to, to enact violence. It says something about the, the willingness of, of, of Americans to... Um, Thinking about about the circumstances in, in, in Wisconsin, the circumstances of which people are are going to engage in, in protests, because protests by their very nature are a little bit unruly. But they're going to become even more unruly when people who are hostile to the protesters show up with guns and feel threatened by the protesters. The protesters then are going to also show up with guns. We're going to end up with a lot more people with guns in the street who see other people as threats and feel justified legally in using the weapons they've got to defend themselves against other people. Um, and that's a dark path to go down. It is. All right, let's, 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 let's go for, for... Happy Thanksgiving, Happy yeah, Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, sorry, one thing that occurred to me when you were speaking in terms of the... This is an American problem, I agree with that, but I also thought, 
look, Robin Hood, you know, there, there's a long tradition of, of, of in uh, probably most cultures, of mm. people um, celebrating outlaws Lots, who, yes. who, who act in the good of the, for the good of the community. So I, I don't think this is uniquely yes. American. But, you know, Robin Hood's a good example. But there are no contemporary Robin Hoods in, in Sherwood Forest who are, who are stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. And if they would, they'd be locked and up. And defying the sheriff of Nottingham. Not no, yes. no, that's right. right. That's right. That's right. But that, anyway. Give him an we, AR-15 we, and he'll we, be we, much we, We've done enough. Um, let's, let's wrap up. So, so uh, we've got time for last drop, Frank. What you yeah, got? I have, I want to recommend, and bear with me for a second, I want to recommend a recent article in the New York Times by Martha Jones, who will be known to some of our listeners, who's a very, very fine historian at Johns Hopkins University. Um, but she published an, a long essay, really. It's really a, a kind of long thought piece, um, a long read, I think we'd call it, um, in the New York Times the other day called Enslaved to a Founding Father, She Sought Freedom in France. And uh, Martha Jones, who I don't know personally, do you know her? She, yeah, she's a friend of mine. She actually came, I think, one of the times when you were over in Virginia, she came here to, to give, a, give a talk and a paper uh, in our workshop. Right. Unfortunately, I missed that. that, But but, uh, anyway, Professor Jones wrote this essay in the Times about um, uh, an enslaved woman named Abigail, we don't have another name for her, a second name, uh, who was enslaved by John Jay when he was a diplomat. Uh, John Jay, the New Yorker, and one of the the authors of the Federalist Papers. He wrote the fewest of the Federalist Papers. Like three of them or something. Yeah, he really became ill. And and Jay was an early American diplomat, among other things. He was a New Yorker. and um, this Chief Justice Supreme Court. Chief, yep, first, uh, the first Chief Justice. Yes, first yep. Chief Justice. Um, and he didn't have a whole lot to do, so he went and negotiated the Jay Treaty. But anyway, that's another story, which we've talked about in the past. But anyway, Jay enslaved this woman, um, Abigail, in Paris she, in 1782 and 83. She sought her freedom. She pursued a freedom suit in Paris. And this is something Annette Gordon-Reed had written about in, in her own work about Sally Hemings and her time in Paris, Sally and James Hemings and their time in Paris. Uh, and and uh, the, the story is excellent. It's so well written, but it's also very interesting. It's illustrated with photos that obviously Martha, um, uh, Martha Jones took herself. Um, it, it, it's really, really great story. Did you, did you see I it? I did. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. And, and I can re- if you're looking for a long read over the Thanksgiving weekend, I would recommend reading this story. It ends sadly because Abigail dies before she's freed, um, wins her freedom, but it's, it's a really, really interesting story. And it's an interesting story about, um, from... Professor Jones's perspective about her kind of pursuit of Abigail and, and her ser- searching for the kind of uh, the threads of Abigail's story in contemporary Paris. So it's a really, really nice story. Wonderful. Yeah. What about you? What have you got? Uh, so I have a story from NPR about uh, the only other country in the world, as far as I can tell, that celebrates American Thanksgiving. What country do you think that's going to be? Well, you told me before, for sure. okay, so I'm fine. not going to spoil it for you. So Okay. The answer... Uh, which was a surprise to me when I read this because it hadn't occurred to me, is Liberia. Uh, but when you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, of course. Uh, Liberia um, was founded uh, by, by formerly enslaved people in the early part of the 19th century. Intriguingly, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving on the same day that, that Americans do. They do it on the first Thursday of November, not the, la- or not the fourth Thursday of November. And their version of Thanksgiving actually has more in common to do with the early 19th century version of Thanksgiving in the United States than it does with the way it's celebrated today. So there's no turkey, there's none of the cranberry sauce, pumpkin pie stuff. But there is, it's much more religious in, in orientation. It is a religious holiday in the way that it would have been in 1820 in Boston or something. Um, but it was a fascinating article in part because because people Liberians are debating about this replace of Thanksgiving in their country and whether how American Liberia should be and how much it should retain these kinds of uh, aspects of, of American culture that they've uh, imported in, in the in the early part of the 19th century did the debate does the debate in Liberia uh, I don't know I didn't see this story. No. so is it, did, did does it touch on the Indigenous question in Thanksgiving is that does that figure into the Liberian debate? Because of course we're having a contemporary debate. Yeah, about yeah, no, to be sure. Um, they didn't say anything about that in the article, but it, they did. You know, it is about a, I think a broader cultural debate in Liberia about you know, which is a country that that if you you know it has an, their flag is modeled the American flag, 
Their capital is named after an American president. They have elections in November because Americans have elections in November. You know, and, and, and there's a debate about, you know, is that, is that appropriate for them as an independent country to replicate some of these aspects of American society? And you know, they point out that they have elections in November because that's when Americans have elections in November, but that's in the middle of their rainy season and it's really inconvenient time to have elections and they really should move them to a different time of the year. Um, but it was just fascinating to think about a, a very different version of, of, of the Thanksgiving holiday uh, celebrated, uh, not at harvest time, but at the uh, beginning of beginning of summer in, in Liberia. So, so be, well, to all of our listeners, listeners, whether you are in the United States or anywhere in the world celebrating Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving to you, David. Yes. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 